The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning, I have two two guests: Dr. Jennifer J. Thomas, Ph.D and author Jenny Schaefer. So we have two Jennies this morning. They, they have co-authored the book, Almost Anorexic, Is My or My Loved One's Relationship with Food a Problem? Dr. Thomas is an assistant professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School, and she specializes in eating disorders. Author uh, Schaefer is uh, chair of the Ambassadors Council of the National Eating Disorders Association. So they are both experts in the field. Welcome to the show, ladies. Nice to have you on this morning. Thanks so much for having us. (laughs) Great to have you. Well, we've spent the first couple of minutes, which our audience hasn't heard, trying to decide how we can uh, address each one of you so we know which Jenny we're talking to. But first of all, let's, I just want to introduce the topic because uh, I guess there's something that many of us, and I have to say I've said this too, you know, I wish I had a touch of anorexia, uh, you know, I've gained a few pounds or I feel like I'm overweight, so I'll, you know, say something like that. And we hear this all the time. So the question is, why does a serious life-threatening illness with, as many of us do know, and uh, as a social worker, I am aware of this, that it has one of the highest mortali- mortality rates of any psychiatrist disorder inspire such cachet? Why do we say this? Why do we take this so lightly? So we can start with um, Dr. Jennifer Thomas. Sure. Um, You know, so I actually have heard a lot of patients say that to me, that they wish they had a touch of anorexia. And I I think that part of the reason it has such cachet is just because the diagnostic criteria for anorexia nervosa are really, really narrow. So only about 1 in 200 American adults will actually ever have anorexia nervosa, but more like 1 in 20 or maybe even higher will actually struggle in that gray area between normal eating and anorexia nervosa. And part of the reason that those folks aren't actually meeting the criteria for anorexia nervosa is that maybe they're not at a really low weight, or maybe they don't endorse a really intense fear of weight gain, um, or maybe they're not in denial of the seriousness of the medical complications of disordered eating. So really, um, you know, anorexia nervosa is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to eating disorders. So why, uh, what, so it's a real problem that it's sort of like that kind of category of pre-diabetic or your high side of normal if it's something, say, physical, um, and this is simple, I guess what you call similar in terms of a, a psychological diagnostic disorder, kind of pre-anorexic but almost anorexic, and it's very common and it's very serious and it's very dangerous. Um, Jenny, um, author Jenny, um, Apparently, you suffered from anorexia. Am I correct? Yes, I did. I did. I had 
all forms of disordered eating, and I struggled with really every eating disorder out there. And I, so I definitely, for a time, actually fell in that almost anorexic phase. Unfortunately, I did not get help during that phase, so my eating disorder progressed to full-blown anorexia nervosa. So, in other words, it's really important, I guess, obviously, you've had the personal experience, but it's really important for us to, like, be aware of what this pre or this almost anorexia is so that you don't get a full blow, you don't become a full blown anorexic, like in your case, and then it becomes much more difficult to treat. Um, Right. I mean, there's so many reasons to treat any eating disorder earlier. I mean, one, absolutely. We don't want people progressing to where they ultimately develop full blown anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa or binge eating disorder. But also, we don't want people just to stay in that almost anorexic phase, which can be quite painful in and of itself. And sadly, so many of those people never get help, and they kind of live their whole life in this state of misery. And it's really sad that nobody reaches out to this group to get help because maybe they don't look like they have an eating disorder. And if you've read our book, you know, Dr. Thomas and I talk a lot about the fact that eating disorders really don't look a certain way, but people tend to think that they do. I want to stop you there because that is true. I think one of the misconceptions and probably a serious one is that people think that you have to be really, really skinny to be considered anorexic and that one would recognize that. But there are a lot of, and I say young women because there are more women um, than men, not that they can't be anorexic, who don't fall into that category of, of looking like a skeleton, for instance. They may even look normal in terms of their weight. That's absolutely right, Catherine. And actually, you know, large-scale studies in the community where researchers go out and interview just regular people outside of the clinic um, really indicate that the vast majority of people who struggle with eating disorders are actually normal weight or overweight. Um, You know, we recently conducted a study here at Mass General Hospital just um, among folks who were seeking treatment at the weight loss center here. And what we found is actually about a third of those individuals actually met criteria for an eating disorder, most of them falling in this almost anorexic category. So you, know, you you absolutely can't tell. I'm so glad that you brought that up. You really can't tell if someone has an eating disorder simply by looking at the person. So how can we tell? How can we, what are some of the signs and the symptoms of, of an, of a, of a almost, I keep, I keep saying pre-anorexic, but uh, almost anorexic because well, there, there are some signs and yeah. And who are, okay, now you can know who, who's going to answer the question, which Jenny? <laughs> So, so Dr. Jenny Thomas, I'll answer this one. Um, so, you know, one of the first things that I would encourage listeners to do would actually just be to go to our website, www.almostanorexic.com. Um, we've partnered um, with some researchers who've come up with a, a screening, a free and confidential screening tool called the EAT26. And so just by going to the website, you can actually go, you know, log on and take this test to see actually if you fall into this group of people that we're really concerned about. Um, but if you're just, you know, kind of listening at home or in your car and you want to get a sense of whether you or a loved one might be struggling, um, there are really five red flags I would say to watch out for. So one is, have you recently lost a lot of weight or does your weight tend to yo-yo and fluctuate a lot because of really rigid dieting? Um, another one is, do you really restrict your food by amount or variety? So not just passing on dessert every once in a while, but maybe really saying, okay, I can't eat any sweets ever, never again. Um, a third red flag would be, do you find yourself getting so hungry that you start 
binge eating and, and really eating large amounts of food while feeling out of control. A fourth one would be, do you try to make up for calories? So are you going on that treadmill and trying to burn off exactly the amount of calories that you ate the night before, or are you making yourself throw up? And then lastly, is body image getting in the way of you being able to live your life to the fullest? You know, it's pretty hot outside. I'm calling in from Boston. Um, and if you're not letting yourself go to the beach because you don't want to be seen in a bathing suit, that's a problem. All right, so those are some of the red flags, and we can go to your website to you have those listed. So if someone is concerned either with themselves or a loved one, or they think possibly they're almost anorexic, then they should, you know, be aware of what these symptoms are. But one of the problems is I find, and I can really name at least two young women who I know who are related one to a coworker, another to a relative of mine. Um, who I think are almost anorexic, but there's a lot of denial associated with it. Not only the individual, but the family. No one wants to talk about it or even admit that their daughter or themselves have this problem. And if you're almost anorexic, I guess is what I'm saying, you can kind of, I think, get it. Can you get into the denial more than you would if you were like full blown? I mean, it's really difficult to break through that denial to get someone to get help. Um, who wants right. to answer? Well, this is so Jenny. I'll answer this from my personal experience with Jenny Schaefer. Um, you know, for me, it's that denial that you're talking about was just so so thick. And and for people listening, I have to reiterate, it really is denial, which means you know the person does not know. It's not that I knew I had an eating disorder and I was trying to hide it. I truly did not even know I had an eating disorder. And that went for so long because we do live in a society that applauds people who can lose weight and who can diet, who can restrict. So I was actually getting complimented for having an eating disorder, both when I was almost anorexic and especially when I was anorexic, because at that point I had lost more weight. And I, so of course I got even more compliments. So I think that's a big, a big problem is and it goes back to what you brought up in the beginning, Catherine, about why does an eating disorder inspire this cachet? But that denial was really hard to break through. But, you know, people in my life kept coming up to me and approaching me about my eating disorder. And finally, eventually, I was able to break through it. So I always encourage people, if you're worried about someone, say something and say it again and keep talking to them. And eventually, with a team of people, you can break through that denial. But it's really hard. How did it begin with you? I mean, do you, can you, you, you go back, obviously, I mean, I assume obviously you've been in therapy, you've worked it through, and you've conquered it. But what do you think precipitated um, being anorexic? So that's a good question. <laughs> and I'm so grateful people like Dr. Thomas are out there researching all this to really get to the bottom of it. But, you know, for me, I think my eating disorder was like a perfect storm. Um, there were a lot of things that came together, but I definitely believe I was born with genetic traits that made me more vulnerable to having an eating disorder. And we actually talk about this quite a lot in our books and personality traits you might inherit and temperament. Like, for instance, I was born very, I, I have high anxiety. I'm a highly anxious person. I was born that way. Now, I've learned in my recovery how to deal with that, how to cope with it. But before I learned how to deal with it, an eating disorder was an excellent avenue to help manage my anxiety, if that makes sense. So even at four years old, I remember worrying about my weight, for instance. And, and perfectionism was another thing, I was a trait I was born with. Even at, at five years old, I remember being a perfectionist. And so these are traits that put in the right environment, made me very vulnerable to an eating disorder. You might have heard researchers say genetics loads the gun when it comes to eating disorder and the environment pulls the trigger. 
and and I think as I recall in your book also, I mean, you mentioned genetics, personality, um, but also what about family? I mean, the over-involved mother, is that a piece of it too? So, you know, I think that's a great question. And, you know, in mental health, I, I almost feel guilty about it. We have a tradition of really blaming parents for their children's mental disorders. I mean, you know, with autism, we had the refrigerator mother. Um, with anorexia, we had the anorexigenic mother. Um, but really, um, there, there's no evidence that parents cause eating disorders um, at all. And in fact, if you think about, you know, parents appearing to be over-involved, you know, one thing I try to remember, I was just meeting with a family yesterday, you know, and of course, and I was thinking, of, of course, you know, the parents are, are concerned, you know, that their daughter is sick. She has an eating disorder. And so, of course, they're going to be wanting to meet with me and ask every single question and be eating meals with her. Um, now, that being said, even though there's no evidence that parents cause eating disorders, you know, certainly um, they can have an impact on the type of values that um, that children might have. You know, so I've also been evaluating patients where, you know, the mom is sitting in the waiting room um, reading a diet book um, while the 12-year-old daughter has anorexia. So, you know, I think it can kind of go both ways, but I just really want to emphasize that, you know, if you're listening at home and you think that maybe your child has a problem, it's not your fault, and that shouldn't be something that prevents you from reaching out for help. Yeah, and, and I think, if you, as you say, it is not your fault, but you may be an enabler. I mean, can we use that term mm-hmm. without realizing it? Sure. I mean, I think that that's fair. Um, you know, and it's really not only parents, it's also our society. Um, Jenny has this great concept of societal ed. Jenny, do you want to talk about it a little bit? Yeah. So I don't know, Catherine, if you're familiar in our book or in my other books, but I, I talk about my eating disorder, the relationship. So I actually learned in therapy when I got better, I learned to treat my eating disorder like a relationship rather than an illness. So I learned to call it ED which is just a, an acronym for eating disorder, ED. It's a guy's name. I actually learned to treat my eating disorder as if it was a guy who was bullying me all day long, which is what it felt like. But what I realized was once I recovered from my eating disorder and I no longer heard Ed talking to me, my eating disorder, I still heard this larger societal message that would tell us all that we need to be thin and we need to lose weight, blah, blah, blah. And we all know the message. And I actually named that societal Ed. So it's basically society's eating disorder, which I really believe society does have an eating disorder on some level. So that definitely helps enable these eating disorders that people are developing. Even at very young ages, you'd be surprised how treatment centers these days are actually opening up programs for children for eating disorders. And this is for boys and girls. Jenny, how does this fit into, though, our society, our obese society? I mean, I look around and I see so many people who are so overweight and obese, and it seems to me that that's getting worse. Um, is is how does this fit in? You know, we have you talk about Ed, uh, eat, you know, our relationship with food. Uh, do we as a society have just a terrible relationship with food? It's kind of all or nothing. We're either stuffing ourselves or starving ourselves, and there's no real balance there. Either one of you can answer that question. Well, you know, I'd love to chime in with that because I, you know, my, um, someone that I worked with in graduate school, Dr. Kelly Brennell, he's a mentor of mine, um, uses the term toxic food environment, that we really live in this toxic food environment. And I would add to that that we also have a toxic body image environment. And so it's really the perfect storm for an eating disorder at any number on the scale. So on the one hand, you know, you've got to be really fit and lose the weight. And we're always hearing about how obesity is at epidemic proportions. But on the other hand, you know, not only do you have to look like a celebrity, 
but you've also got to be supersizing it and going to McDonald's. You know, you're seeing commercials all the time. There's so much tasty, palatable, and cheap food available. And so that's really the perfect storm to get people really confused and start to develop disordered eating. So, you know, there actually were a lot of interesting debates leading up to the publication of, of DSM-5, um, you know, which is, again, the, the manual that we use to help to figure out if someone has a mental disorder. Um, really, there's a debate around whether obesity should be considered a mental disorder. Now, ultimately, um, they decided not to actually go for that. And I'm so glad that they didn't because, you know, of course, many people can be overweight and be perfectly mentally healthy. That being said, you know, we really want to emphasize, and we talk about this in the book, that just because someone's overweight or obese doesn't mean that it's okay if they're exhibiting eating disorder symptoms. So, you know, some people might have seen like the biggest loser where people will go, you know, hours and hours without eating and exercise all day. I mean, that's really, you know, if we saw that behavior in a normal weight person, we'd be really concerned about it. And if we see that behavior in an obese person, we should be really concerned about it as well. Yeah, so uh, we have a real societal problem here in the United States, and you know, I travel a lot. I'm beginning to see this also in other countries, at least in European countries, Western countries. This, you know, the same kind of a, a I guess, dichotomy or whatever of uh, this whole problem with uh, with our relationship with food. I want to ask you this: Is this if we? you know, almost anorexic. Is this a new label? Is this a new label that's going to, you know, label people and, um, you know, lead to new medications? Um, let, let's talk about that because, you know, now we have you know, this, well, there's a label of pre-diabetic, for instance, um, uh, and doctors use that term. Okay, that's, you know, a physical problem. But um, is this a new psychological definition that's going to cause people to be labeled almost anorexic? And what would be the consequences of that? Sure. You know, I'm, I'm glad you asked. Um, so really the, the technical label in the DSM-5 is not almost anorexic. Um, it's called Other Specified Feeding or Eating Disorder. So, you know, doctors, we call it OSFED. It's a new acronym. Um, but most people in society have never heard of OSFED, and they've never heard of the DSM. I mean, it's like alphabet soup. So the reason that we've used this term almost anorexic is not because it's an official medical term, but it's really something that I think people can hear that term and immediately get the concept. Oh, this is someone who struggles with disordered eating, but they don't might meet they don't quite meet criteria for anorexia nervosa. And certainly our intention is never to label people or to over-pathologize or to point the finger and say, oh, you have an eating disorder, but really just to provide an avenue to get help for people who already realize that they're struggling, but they maybe they just don't see themselves in those diagnostic criteria. Um, and I certainly hope that this could stimulate not only help-seeking, but also more research about people in this gray area. Um, we talk about in the book, we, we actually, you know, we're still learning more and more every day about people in this group because scientists often don't ask questions about them because they don't fit into the neat little boxes that we use to conduct our research. Yeah. I think you've done that, and I do like that label. I, I think you're so right because almost anorexic doesn't sound like a, a disease. It doesn't sound like you have some mental disorder or physical disorder. So it just sounds like a kind of a, a, a layman's term. And I think you've done that. I, I do like that title, and I think it, it doesn't label people necessarily. But let, you know, this almost effect in there, I guess you have, there's a whole series of books written by the Harvard Medical School uh, faculty. Let's talk about that. The almost, I have the uh, website, thealmosteffect.com. Um, what's that all about? Because this obviously relates to your book. 
Absolutely. So this is a series that our editor, Dr. Julie Silver, who's a professor here at the medical school, really developed as an idea to really democratize or kind of get out there to the public something that mental health professionals, you know, and I'm sure you, Catherine, already know about, which is this idea that many people are out there struggling and suffering and really need treatment or really need some sort of help or support, but they don't quite meet full criteria for for a mental disorder. And so some of the other books in the series are almost alcoholic, um, almost depressed, almost addicted. There's almost a psychopath. Um, One that I'm really excited about is my colleague, Dr. Luana Marquez, has one coming out called Almost Anxious. And, you know, Jenny was just mentioning that there are really high overlap between anorexia and anxiety. So I've actually been recommending that book to a lot of my patients as well. So I think it's a a really helpful series for people. Uh, Jenny or Dr. Schaefer, I I don't want to digress, but almost a psychopath, you have to explain that to me. (laughs) (laughs) I know, that's a great one. That's actually one of my favorites. Um, And it talks about a lot of people on Wall Street, um, you know, who might fall into this category, people who wouldn't actually end up being diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. But, you know, maybe you can tell that they're superficially charming, but they don't have your best interests at heart, or maybe they're going to end up swindling you. Um, And so it's interesting because, you know, in our book, we talk more to people who might be struggling. And in that book, they really talk more to people to help you avoid running into people who are almost psychopaths. <laughs> I've right. got it like a Bernie Madoff or a potential Bernie Madoff kind of thing. You want to recognize that kind of a almost psycho, well, he became a psychopath or is, but that kind of behavior. Well, that's, you don't have to say anymore. You, yeah, Catherine, I mean, this is Jenny Schaefer. I was date, dating for a long time, recently engaged, but I'll tell you what, that book, Almost a Psychopath, could have helped me a lot in the dating world, so I highly recommend it to anybody out there dating. <laughs> okay, now I get it, and I think a lot of my <laughs> listeners get it. Yeah, it helps in the dating, especially if you're doing online dating, all that stuff. Right, I right. It, right, yeah. So uh, that's great. I like it. The almost effect.com because that's going to affect a lot more people, I guess, than, if, you know, than to be diagnosed for any of these, the, uh, uh, the, the, the ones that you just mentioned, for instance, besides psychopath, but almost, and probably most of us fall in that category at some time or other in our lives, and we can avoid becoming a full-blown anorexic or a full-blown anxiety disorder or whatever it is if we are aware of some of these symptoms. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I wish, you, you know, I wish I would have heard about this series when I was struggling with my own eating disorder, because I, I remember being in high school and in college and looking at brochures that would talk about eating disorders such as anorexia or bulimia, but I never quite saw that I fit into the little diagnostic boxes that they would create on these little brochures. They'd have three little things you have to do to be anorexic and three little things you have to do to be bulimic. Well, I wasn't those, so I thought, well, I'm okay. I'm just, I'm fine. But if there would have been another box that said almost anorexic or something else along those lines, I might have gotten help sooner. And that's really what it's about is just get helping people sooner than later and alleviating pain and suffering. So I assume that you've done that, obviously, with your book and the website. So how does it all work? I mean, can you actually research or can you do you know how many people, let's say you've helped who come to your website who may sought help? I mean, is there any way for you to have have any knowledge of who you're reaching out to, how effective you're being with this 
You know, yeah. it's, a, it's a great question. Um, you know, Jenny may have some data about people visiting um, her website. We don't have exact numbers on how many people have actually popped by almostanorexic.com. But what I can say is that we've been so pleased with the response to the book. I mean, we've been really fortunate that a lot of people have been reading it and listening to interviews like this. And actually, Jenny and I have gotten several, you know, actually tons of emails from people who've said, thank you for writing this. Um, you know, I, I always knew that I was struggling, but I never felt like I deserved to get help. And, and so, you know, this book has allowed me to really realize that I, I can go out and seek therapy, that, you know, I deserve to get treatment. And so that's just, you know, been really a blessing. We've been so fortunate to hear from so many people that, um, that our book has helped. It's really an honor. Jennifer, yeah, what? I, yeah. I, will, I, was gonna say, ask, I, just, I have a person, I have a personal question to ask because I mentioned earlier in the show, I do know two young women, particularly one who I definitely fits this category of almost anorexic. So as a Outsider, how would I say something to either her or her mother in this case? How do you approach that without offending them and saying, you know, I, I think there's a problem. I'm a social worker, obviously, so that gives me a little bit of a, an edge. But still, without ruining our relationship, you know, it's none of your business, or, um, which is I wouldn't want to, to jeopardize my relationship with my, with my cousin, Right. Well, I mean, I, this is Jenny Schaefer. So I, I found that I have, you know, I've approached many different people because of the work that I do as well. And I find that different people find different paths um, more helpful in approaching people. So in your case, for instance, my first thought was you're, you're similar to me in that you do work in the field. And interestingly enough, you just interviewed two authors about this concept. So, you know, if I were you, I would actually probably say something just like, hey, you know, I just did an interview with these people. This book looked really great. And, and I would just pass it off to, to your friend and, and maybe not even say anything on the first first time. I, I do it differently. You know, everybody is so differently, and you really have to intuitively feel people out. But And then I would I would definitely follow up with, with making a direct comment. And I think it's really important to emphasize that this is a an mental illness. It's not something people choose. It's an illness that has high, high genetic effects. It's, it's in many ways biological. So it's, it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's something as if you had cancer. I mean, if your friend had cancer, if any of our friends had cancer and they weren't getting help, we would go up to them and say, hey, you have cancer. You need to get help. So that's kind of my perspective. I'm kind of, I'm, I, I'm really direct these days. I feel like too many people don't approach others. So I think we should just approach people and, and of course, a supportive and compassionate way. But Dr. Thomas might have even better research advice. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's well said, and that's very helpful. Okay, Dr. Thomas, give us some advice. We have a couple minutes left, so add to that if you can. Sure. I mean, I think I would ditto a lot of what Jenny already said, you know, just really approaching the person and really, you know, taking a stance of just being really honest and saying that you're worried. Um, a couple of things is that I would make sure trying to use, um, and you may talk about this already to reviewers, but using I statements as opposed to you. So instead of saying, well, you know, you've lost a lot of weight or you've gone gluten-free or you have an eating disorder to say, well, you know, I've noticed that that you, you know, since you've gone raw um, and then only been eating vegetables that you you, you know, look like you're really struggling or really unhappy or, you know, I'm really concerned that you haven't been socializing as much lately. So really kind of focusing on your own distress, I think, can be disarming for people and, and really give them a chance to open up. Great advice. All right. We have to, we have a, a, just a, a minute left, actually. So um, 
how about website? Mention the website once again, and obviously the title of your book, uh, Almost Anorexic, is my or my loved one's relationship with food a problem, um, and the website that we can go to. Sure. You know, so again, the, the title is Almost Anorexic. The website is www.almostanorexic.com. Again, our point is not to pathologize people, but really to provide an avenue to get help. You know, at the end of the day, eating more raw vegetables is a healthy lifestyle change, but eating only raw vegetables, that's almost anorexic. Got it. Great having you on the show this morning, both of you. Um, and really uh, an excellent book. Yeah, I read it last week. It is an excellent book. Easy. Um, almost anorexic, uh, Jennifer J. Thomas, Ph.D., and author Jenny Schaefer. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thanks. Yeah, yeah we're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support you. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is author Anne W. Smith. Uh, her new book is Overcoming Perfectionism, Finding the Key to Balance and Self-Acceptance. Uh, she says we're all familiar with sayings like practice makes perfect and failure is not an option, but do these outlooks carry any danger? Uh, Ann Smith, who and she is a renowned author and expert in the field of relationships and person, personal growth, 
will share her 30 years of experience with compulsive patterns and the impact perfectionism can have on individuals and families. And it's not a good one. You've seen um, Anne on on NPR, NBC. She's a regular contributor to Psychology Today and the Wall Street Journal. Welcome to the show, Anne. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you. I'm real glad to be here. Okay, so perfectionism. Uh, in some ways, we think, well, you know, practice makes perfect. Uh, winning isn't everything, but really, it's the only thing. I mean, these are the kind of aphorisms that kind of that we that are prevalent in our society. But you're saying it's really not a good thing. Perfectionism is a compulsion, and it's dangerous. Explain that to yes. us. Uh, we we see a lot of perfectionism that isn't dangerous, but <clears throat> when it goes to an extreme, it, it really can be. It can be very destructive to health and to relationships and careers. All right. Well, let's, how? How can it be, how, you know, people say, well, why? I mean, why would you compare, and, and I'm assuming that you do, um, if it's a compulsion, you're, you're equating it with smoking or gambling or sex addiction, um, and it can have the same negative impact, but I think, how does that happen? Why is it a bad thing? I mean, you, I think of perfectionism in a job. I want to do the very best that I possibly can do. It has to be perfect. What's bad about that? Well, excellence is great. Uh, perfect uh, is a stretch. And what happens is that when people are born with a trait uh, which is kind of how I view it for most of the people who get in trouble with it. They're born with this trait to prefer organization. And if if they have a pretty balanced life and a pretty good childhood, that's not going to become a problem. But when they start to use it as a means of coping, and if it's combined with other problems like anxiety and depression and possibly addiction, eating disorders, it can become a very serious thing because it go, it takes everything to an extreme. And the extremes, as we know, are always not the place you want to go. All right. So perfectionism is different than excellence. And yes. that's that, that's the major difference. And what you're saying is as I understand it, like if we have this compulsion to have everything perfect, it's sort of a perfect storm. We have a propensity for being that way. We have a, a trait. You're saying that it's genetic and given the right kind of environment, we will become perfectionists and it becomes a compulsive act and that's not a good thing. Is that right? And it's a, it's a word people throw around a lot. Yesterday I, I encountered a person who said, uh, came to my office for a different reason, nothing to do with uh, this information. And she saw my book in the office and she said, oh, that's interesting. What's wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of people will say that. And, I, you know, I tend to like to speak to people kind of uh, in, in the more uh, moderate levels of perfectionism because they can prevent that compulsion from becoming so serious and uh, and disrupting their lives. And in some cases, you know, the disruption appears to be mild, but I, I think it's very serious when something negatively affects your relationships and your quality of life. Well, you've had experience for, what, 30 years. You're a uh, treating individuals and families. Licensed right. you are, and I didn't mention this is your credentials, I guess, in the beginning necessarily, because you are a licensed marriage and family therapist. So I assume that you have seen how this perfectionism destroys individuals and families in your practice. 
Well, I don't know if I would automatically say it destroys families, but what it does is it 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 really makes that the quality of the relationship less than it could be. What what perfectionists do is they focus on doing, they focus on achieving, they focus on externals, and often in in their pursuit of perfection, they leave the loved ones in in the dust and they don't get a chance to really deepen their relationships. So they look pretty good and they're achieving pretty well externally, but on the inside, nobody really knows them, and they feel exhausted and and spent uh, in areas that don't really line up with their values. Well, let's talk about some of those symptoms. What are the symptoms on the inside, the psychological symptoms, the physiological uh, implications? What? Yeah, it you know it starts out with as I said just a preference for order. You know you can see that in a three year old. Uh, you know they already you know like symmetry. They like things to be put where they belong. You know that's that's a tendency that some people have, and it's not really a problem, unless they're they have a less than ideal childhood and their the stress in their family causes them to start using it as a coping mechanism uh people will uh it's actually about attachment where people really will will want to be with me because I'm good because I do things right and they also start using it as a way of comforting themselves it's like someone who's angry starts cleaning and and they they put they put some some con- kind of concrete thing together and they see it finished and they see it looking good and then they feel better briefly so over time, what happens is that they use it compulsively, where every time they're feeling bad, they just get more uptight and more driven toward that perfectionist goal. And they always think it's temporary. You know, I'll just get over this thing. I'll just finish this project. But it doesn't ever end if they're using it for the wrong reasons. It really has to do with their motivation. Yeah, motivation. So they're using this to kind of get rid of their anxiety, to overcome mm-hmm. their anxiety, to stay in control rather than to deal with what the issues are, why they're anxious, I mean, which would right. help to get over the anxiety. But you also mentioned, I think, you know, that there are really some, like, as listeners are, are, are listening to the show, they would, you know, in terms of if, if they're trying to diagnose perhaps whether they suffer from this com- compulsion, they may, I mean, you mentioned headaches and Fear mm-hmm. of failure and sleep disturb- disturbances. So you get very specific uh, in the book, and right. let's talk about some and, of those specific. Yeah, suicidal yeah. thoughts. I, you know, there are, when you keep chasing something that you'll never achieve, there's always this feeling of inadequacy: never enough, never enough, and that the next thing is going to do it. And so, what happens is if depression kicks in because of all of that stress, and for some people, they're 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 disposed to depression and anxiety early in life that might be something else that they're dragging around. And so they start to feel bad about themselves and they start to feel isolated and exhausted. Workaholism, that kind of thing will kick in. And as that, as that develops, that isolation is the most dangerous part of it because they don't tell anyone how badly they're feeling. In fact, they keep on putting a smile on their faces. 
Uh, I remember a woman years ago that shocked her community and her co-workers by um, it being such a, a great, uh, I think she was an administrative assistant, and they were planning a workshop that I was about to do, and she had done such a great job, and she even sent sent uh, the payment for my speaking engagement in advance and had every single thing lined up. And the day before this, this event, I got a call that she had killed herself, that uh, she committed suicide, and before she did, she made everything perfect. For her children, her husband, her her job, and, and no one knew. And I think it really it, the isolation is probably the most dangerous part of it because they keep on going. They don't know another way, and they don't tell anyone. They don't want people to see how broken they are, and it's that um, that secrecy that that ends up doing them in. So, as a family or a loved one, uh, you know, a child or a husband or a partner or a spouse. How, what we need to know how we can recognize that that's mm-hmm. happening to our loved one. Like you said, that's a horrible story. I mean, this this poor woman, uh, as you said, committed suicide after getting everything in order. Um, how do we help to prevent that? I mean, can on the outside, you know, this I, I think. Yeah, it really does. The only, I think the only thing that will stop someone is if their loved ones intervene. And, you know, I'm thinking of another case, too, where uh, a man who was uh, workaholic, again, driven, you know, trying to achieve, and also always believed that his his overworking was a temporary thing that he just had to get through, but of course that's not the case. And the work piled up, and he became very irritable every day when he would come home. He would criticize his family, and and he was a good man, and he loved them very much. And he just had to have order everywhere in every part of his life uh, in order to feel comfortable. And he he wanted to demand that everybody provide that order for him. So he would he would be critical and and scold his children and yell at them. And eventually, uh, his wife went for help, and they sat down with him and and the children. And the children told their dad, "We love you, but we're afraid of you." And this is how interventions happen with people with with an extreme form of perfectionism, because they. They are not going to say that that's the problem. They don't ever think about that. It isn't the typical presenting problem when people go to counseling. It's something else. You know, it's a family problem or it's it's a, a, a mood disorder or something of that kind, but they don't know what it is. And once the family intervened, he immediately was willing to get help and make changes. And I love this family. Yeah, it was a positive outcome. I mean, he was, they yeah, were very, yeah. very positive. See, that's a great but story. But he had I to think, be stopped. He couldn't do it himself. Yeah. And you see people doing that. Um, is this related to obsessive compulsive disorder? You know, it isn't. It sounds a little bit like it, but it that's... really isn't um, because it doesn't have the, the physiology of, of the kind of compulsive uh, behavior that someone with obsessive compulsive disorder has. Uh, that is much more of a medical condition, um, and and someone may not be a perfectionist uh, and still uh, have obsessive compulsive disorder. They're not trying to be perfect. They're just trying to um, really treat their own anxiety with whatever their particular compulsive behavior is. So, so Anne, it's, are you a, also it's a different that, thing. 
it, when someone is a perfectionist, and let's take a mother, for instance, and a mother who perhaps is a stay-at-home mom and has has three children and mm-hmm. is a perfectionist. I mean, I, I think I've witnessed that before, and you will see women, that everything yeah. in the house has to be perfect and clean and and dinner has to be on the table at exactly the right time. And uh, you see all this played out in a similar way as you were describing the man who had to be a perfectionist at work and who was a workaholic. Uh, it also manifests itself in whatever environment you're in. And I, I see mm-hmm. women who are in that similar situations in their own home. And then they obviously, a part of that is also trying to get their children to be perfect. So it's really has right. devastating effects. Yeah. It can be. And, you know, I, I really want to say that, that you know, most mothers uh, and fathers love their children and they love each other and they they don't want to be like this. And they don't mean to be like this all the time. But what, what is really lacking is that, you know, someone who is taking care of a family that way is really trying to say, I love you and I care about you. But they're not doing that. That's not coming across. And so it's it's hard, but but people who care about them, whether it's a sister or a, uh, a friend, needs to sit down and say, look, I know you love your children, but they don't know you love them because cleanliness does not show love. And, you know, I, sometimes we'll talk about attachment behaviors and the God. things can they just, can do. Yeah. Cleanliness is not God next to godliness. No, no. no, it's definitely not. You talk about overt and covert Patterns? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk, what's the difference between an overt and a covert pattern of uh, perfectionism? Well, most people would recognize the overt. It's the person who looks like a perfectionist and who, who operates that way, and, and you can see it, where uh, they're focused on the, the external things, things people would see. They uh, would prefer that other people also be perfectionists and sometimes are a little critical of other people. Um, they they tend to have a pretty high standard for their own performance, and it's visible. But the covert type is actually someone who feels pressure inside to be better than they are, but they don't they don't have that ability to pull it off. And so what they do is they have areas of their lives where they may put a lot of pressure on themselves to do things well, but in most areas they fall short. And it's the self-criticism, it's the, it's the perfectionist thinking that is getting them in trouble more than anything. And they fall into depression and they never measure up. And they, they, there are a lot of people will also really say um, very negative things about themselves. Oh, I'm not a perfectionist. You know, I just don't care if anybody saw my house. You know, and, they, and then they walk away feeling shame, feeling terrible about themselves. So it's more about the self-esteem plummeting because of that inner standard that they have. What about, and let's go back to also, um, this is another question I have used mentioned in the beginning of the interview, that people have a trait or a predisposition to be a perfectionist, and given the right set of circumstances or family background, it can become a full-blown problem, compulsion. What relationship do siblings have in all of this? You know, we often talk, we talk about mothers, we talk about parents and how they can mm-hmm. contribute to it, but what about siblings? Well, it's very interesting because if one of the children, um, you know, the term super kid, you know, if one of the children in a family, let's say with two or three siblings, is, is a kid who does everything well, 
Our culture says that kid is better than the others. And it, let's say they're good at sports, they get good grades, they look nice. That child is going to feel really pressured to do more. And the other children, unfortunately, are going to feel an inner pressure to not compete with that one. They're, but they, that's, this is where the covert comes from. Sometimes what will happen is that a, a child will start to feel inadequate compared to the, to the super kid and will feel like they should be. Why can't you be like your brother? Your teachers will say things like that. And th- they will have trouble with, first of all, they won't be able to get close to this kid because people with that, that sort of super kid syndrome will most likely be best at performing but not so great at relating. You know, getting close and having fun and being equal and being authentic will not be the strong suit for the perfectionist. And the other kids will pull away and it will it will sort of divide a family. Yeah, I've seen that as a social worker, obviously. Uh, it's pretty, I don't know if I would say common, but you see it a lot. And I think one of the other things, and society also encourages that. I mean, yep. the, it encourages the super kid to, you know, get those fabulous grades, get into the best college, be the best kid on those teams and, you know, be the superstar. So it's kind of in our society, in our environment where our culture kind of like adds to it, how, what do we do? Cause it's, a, it's not just the family or the parents or the siblings, but it's also the culture that encourages this perfectionism and says it's a really good thing. Yes. It, it, it's an interesting thing when you look at it from an attachment perspective, because what happens is that that child, if, if, if the parents are not really great at emotional relating at the, the, the reassurance, the comfort, the, um, the, the, the attention to, to the feelings of children, this kid will just have a deficit in that area. They will be really strong in the way that they look, but they will not be emotionally well. And they're the ones that surprise you with their depression and their suicidal thoughts later on. It, they really are not um, noticing. Parents think that a successful kid is a happy kid. And they may hide their feelings from their parents. So attachment, really, this child, the super kid, uh, gets all of their attachment uh, attention in the form of praise for doing things. And that's not enough. It's not enough for any of us. Well, you know, to use the social work vernacular, and I'm not sure this is how you're supposed to use it, but parents also get some kind of a a secondary gain. You know, when you have a kid who's a superstar, it feels good. You know, other parents look at you, the community looks at you, hey, you're really a good parent. Look what what your kid is doing. And I think that feeds into it as well. Yes, especially if the parent, if one of the parents is also a perfectionist. Because they don't know any better, and they, they don't see their own issue with it. If they do see their issue, and this is a, a, a you know really important thing to think about, is you know if if they see their own issue, they're going to be a better parent with their with their perfectionist child. And the first thing a parent has to do when they're worried about a child is look at themselves and say, what am I modeling? Now, modeling doesn't cause perfectionism, but it definitely makes it worse. You know, it can make it much harder. So they have to look at themselves. Are they being perfect? Are they the perfect, the perfect mom or the perfect dad? And do ever, does everybody see them as a super person? 
because that's not going to help. They're going to have to slow down. They're going to have to work more on deepening the relationship they have with this child rather than continually running after them, um, you know, you know, not having meals together because they're going to all the, the activities that their child is involved in. So what are we talking about in terms of numbers? Do we have any idea... Uh, numbers here in the United States. How many people does this this perfectionism affect? I don't think anyone has come up with a number, but I can say with with uh, with my experience, I would say probably like fifteen percent, maybe ten percent of the clients that I've seen. But you know that's sort of skewed too because. Uh, you know, perfectionist clients want to get more perfect, so they come to therapy for other things. You know, they want to be a better parent or they, you know, that kind of thing. And then we go about identifying the problem, but they come in for something else, maybe depression or, or something else. So it's pretty hard to pin it down. It isn't, it isn't as simple as saying a person is either uh, an addict or they're not. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a little more vague. And, you know, also uh, there's a wide range of seriousness in, in the, the uh, perfectionism issue. But I'm, I'm all about prevention. So, you know, I think if there's a way to intervene early in a problem and not have it destroy your marriage or destroy your family or your career, um, you know, that's, that's what we want to do is prevent that. Yeah, so prevention is what it's all about. So yep. obviously your book is one thing to, to obviously we have access to. We can read Overcoming Perfectionism. That's Ann Smith's new book. And uh, hopefully that will help in terms of prevention. Uh, we only have a few minutes left. There's a website that we can go to, Breakthrough at Karen, C-A-R-O-N.org. That's right. It's all one word. Breakthrough at Karen.org is the program that I operate uh, at um, Karen Treatment Centers, which is for average people who feel stuck in any kind of pattern. It's a residential program that works well with outside therapy, too. That's all of us. <laughs> yes, it is. That's for the world. That's how I see it. <laughs> Definitely. Or you have another website. I'll mention your, well, this is your personal website, www.annsmith.com. What are we going to find on that? Right, that is the, uh, the the website for my private practice in Harrisburg, where I live. Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Yep. Yeah, Har- I know it well. Um, so, dot or org, and uh, it's Ann Smith Overcoming Perfectionism. Uh, it's it really is a great book, seriously, and it is for all of us, easy to read. And uh, for lay people, what do we want to leave our guests with? I mean, like we're talking about prevention. So what can, are there three things? Like if someone's listening to the, sh- to the show and they think, well, maybe I do have this problem or my spouse or my partner, or my kid has this problem. Are there maybe just three things we could key into that they could perhaps um, recognize? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, if they're not at the point where professional help is needed, there are a couple of things I'd suggest. One is put people first. In your life, you know, your, your relationships with people, deepening those. Uh, slow down with everything. Walk slower, talk slower, do less, and simplify, which is to get the, get the unnecessary stuff and activities out of your life and put the emphasis where your values are. Those are I think that's good for all of us, even if we aren't or don't see ourselves yeah. as yeah, I think it's wise to practice those things. Yeah, every day. I, I, yeah. Put people first. Slow down and simplify. 
and Simplify is not so easy to do these days, but uh, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, those are three great, uh, I don't know, initiatives. It's great having you on the show today. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Great. Ann Smith, Overcoming Perfectionism. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and I'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.